the other kind of radio talk radio the other kind of radio talk radio from the studios here in Omaha Nebraska welcome to the 24th edition of the other kind radio the other kind radio is a podcast in which Todd and Jeff ping pong around all that is pop culture we're a weekly podcast and we just kind of kind of just schmooze around that's a word talk about pop culture the great thing about that is it doesn't require either one of us to really be an expert in anything (laughs) on the show today we're going to have headlines uh we're going to talk uh a little planet of the apes with todd's take on my judgment's going to be on the new um mission impossible movie which i just went and saw and was pleasantly surprised by. But in order to get all that done, we gotta get uh, we gotta get Todd in here. And let me see, I'll use his favorite way of finding him here. He's somewhere in the state of Texas. Let's put that sonar out there. See if we can't detect ourselves a Todd. Todd, come in. I'm trying to think if there's any water in a drought-ridden date that sonar would work in <laughs> it's special sonar i just like i just like using that because then it reminds you of your favorite movie you know what um i i kind of like it because i'm not in the makeup chair this week <laughs> i don't worry about that so i'm actually pretty cool with the sonar i'm trying to uh not beat you to death with that one every week so how you doing yeah. bud how's your week been the week's been uh, good. It's back to school for us here in Texas. And so having a teenage kid that this is her first official year in high school. Ooh. Yeah, she's a sophomore now. And it's it's been a shift. Uh, we were all ready for the weekend. But it's been a great week. How about you, my friend? Uh, same here. Same here. Work is uh, picking up for when I'm getting ready to go to uh, some business in uh, San Francisco. But I have a question. I have to back up to the sophomore in high school. You say that's the first year? Well, you know, some schools will do the whole freshman through senior. And we live in a community, a suburb of Dallas, that I don't know when this was decided, but they decided they they, they really tried to say, we're going to put a cap on how big the city can probably get. And we only want to have one high school. We want a central system. And it's a humongous high school. This city really is big enough to have two high schools. But in the interest of that, they said the freshmen are going to have a freshman center, which is right across the street. Hmm. So she was a freshman. She just went to the freshman center. And this year she's at the senior high school. That's interesting because when I when we were living in El Paso, that was eighth through twelfth. So my eighth grade year. Yeah, it was a huge school. So eighth grade and eighth and ninth grade, I went there. And the interesting thing was, uh, you know, El Paso High School is, you know, just a regular old public school. Uh, and we had open campus for an hour for lunch. We had all these freedoms. And then we moved up here to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And it was closed campus. And, you know, you had to sit in the cafeteria. And there were all these rules and everything. And I thought it was interesting that, to go from kind of having 8th through 12th graders um, running around and getting lunch to having it only that I think only seniors could go could leave campus uh to go get lunch uh, back in that day so you know her graduating class currently is estimated to be around 1800 kids wow and 
you can look at that and think, oh my God, what are they doing? But you, what they try to do is they try to prep and say, now the kids can be more acclimated if they go to a large college. They've already experienced this idea of being mm, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one of you know few that even get noticed. And, and it, I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but at the same time, she's like, gee, I go to school and I feel like I see no one because <laughs> everyone's there. And, you know, <laughs> very true. Well, I hope, I hope that year goes well. Um, wow. High school. So long ago, long, long time ago. I tell her all the time. I'm like, you know what? Why does every adult come to you and say, oh, you're in high school. I would never do it again because we all know what a butt beating it can be. <laughs> Very true. All right. Well, let's get into the show. Let's get into headlines. Pulling out the old typewriter here. There we go. Okay. All right, kind listeners. Welcome to Headlines. Uh, we got a couple different areas we're going to talk about. First, we're going to go into film. Uh, while I was, uh, of course, nowadays when you go see a movie, you get to see so many previews that sometimes this old man even forgets what movie he's gone to see. Uh, to set it up a little bit for you, though, um, I was the only one in the theater. So that was, I kind of felt like you in your theater. Like I could pull out my phone and, and do stuff because there was nobody around that it would bother. Um, but uh, one of the previews that came across while I was sitting in this theater by myself was, om- and I audibly said, because there was nobody else in there, you got to be effing kidding me, was a preview for a movie about Robin Hood. They're bringing Robin Hood back. Another reboot of Robin Hood. Now, I know I shared a little bit with this with you with this before we started the show. And I, you know the kind of the tale of the tape. But, I mean, you said there's some good actors in there. But, I mean, I couldn't even tell you who was in there. I was so bummed out that they're going back into this bucket. You know, so I'll begin with what I don't like. I'm not a Jamie Foxx fan. I, But I'll say in this trailer, I was actually like, okay, he's a little different. But that's a sidetrack. <laughs> This has got Taron Egerton. Did who he get his sight in... back? Can he see in this film? Who? Jamie Foxx. I was <laughs> nervous after that one movie he did where he was blind, but he could play the piano. <laughs> Boy, you just minimalized Ray Charles just completely. No, no, no. Uh, not <laughs> right. I want to get a bunch of hate mail. Love Ray Charles. Was trying to make it funny about Jamie Foxx. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, Taron Egerton, who was in Kingsman. You know, great in those. Ben Mendelsohn, who... plays the sheriff of nottingham my immediate thought is can this dude do anything except be the the bad guy in a a movie jamie dornan who even though in 50 shades of gray is really a good actor and even eve houston who is bono's daughter who was on the fantastic show that steven soderbergh did um called the nick about a turn of the century hospital with clive owen fantastic people across the board and this director uh otto Bat, Bathurst, Bathurst, I don't know how you say that, but you know, he's directed some stuff like uh, Peaky Blinders that's uh, through Netflix and whatnot. He's done oh. an episode of Black Mirror. This is a guy that knows how to do good stuff, but immediately, not only am I, I'm like, okay, fine, you want to tell the story again? It hasn't been told well in a long time. That's at least what I'll say. Okay, in a while, what's one, what's an, a version of that you like of this, this movie? Shrek? Um, what isn't Shrek? Doesn't he a little bit like Robin Hood? A little bit. Okay, uh, that is true. Okay, you got that. But you know, I almost think you have to go back to Errol Flynn. You know, back in the classic Hollywood before you find Robin Hood that was any good or any fun. Um, you're gonna you're gonna leave this one out with the great Kevin Costner. 
who sounded like a West Coast surfer in old England. But you had this song. Do you, I don't even remember who played. Is it Mary Jane or Mary? Mary, what is Robin Hood's squeeze? Uh, Maid Marian. Maid Marian. What's her name? Oh, God, I can see her face. She had curly, curly hair. And the great thing about that version of the movie is that was back when we had a little thing. Bear with us, young, kind listeners. We had this thing called MTV back when they actually played music videos. And when that Kevin Costner movie came out, this song was on MTV nonstop. Uh-huh. And that is literally, that song is like laying on your back, opening your mouth, and have someone pour an endless flow of sugar <laughs> in your mouth. And pardon me for cussing. You can beat me if you want. But, oh, my God, anything I do, I do for you. If I went up to my wife and said that, she'd be like, you know what? If you want to act like that, buy me a Hallmark card. Wow, you just took Brian Adams and totally minimalized him. Yes, I did, <laughs> and gladly so. What's uh, wrong that with, was Mary Elizabeth Mastro Antonio. What was, what's wrong with Brian Adams? He's from Canada. <laughs> like, that's a qualifier now. Oh, he's from Canada? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Adams. I, you know, nothing's wrong if you don't like real cheese. I mean, it's just completely processed cheese being poured down your throat along with that sugar. He's crap. Um, can I submit my resignation from the show if you're going to continue to play Brian Adams? <laughs> okay, all right. I've stopped that. But we've got to at least to have a little bit of this. We're men. We're men in tights. We roam around the forest looking for heights. We're men. We're men in tights. We run from the rich and give to the poor. That's right. So we've had, we've had the whole gamut. I guess we had... Would you say that the Kevin Costner version, it was the, the serious, you know, like who directed that one? Do you know? Directed which one? The, uh, um, men in tights. No, the Kevin Costner, Kevin Reynolds, who was a friend of Kevin Costner's and had, they had come up together. He also directed Waterworld, I believe. Ooh, I that mean, was a great film. That's, you know what that is? That's Robin hood on water. <laughs> You know what it is? It's Mel Brooks. I mean, Mel Brooks. It's Mad Max <laughs> removed the dirt. It is right. literally right. It's crap. Right. Dude, I got an idea. Okay, you know how in Mad Max it was set in the desert? This one's on water. Don't worry, though. We'll make it awful. Um, okay, but that was a serious attempt at Robin Hood. You would say that with, with Kevin Costner. And then did you ever figure out her name? You didn't Mar look Mary at Elizabeth Mastrantonio. There you go. She's very pretty. She's lovely and she's a great actress. And I think I said it, but I think the whole gating thing that we still have an issue with might have cut me out. Oh, whenever. I'm sorry. You should be. <laughs> um, it had, it had Christian Slater, Christian Slater in it. Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Oh, Morgan Freeman, and that, and he played like the wise monk, right? Or what was Morgan Freeman? Was he the trainer? Uh, is he Friar Tuck? I think he is. I get it confused. Um. I'm scrolling. IMDb, here we come. This is a riveting show. He plays a character called Azim. I don't know if that wasn't made up. He, I think he, he's at the beginning of the film. I think he breaks him out or something like that. Okay, so then we had the serious attempt. Then we have Men in Tights, which is basically, I think, that is that a Mel Brooks show? 
and you know was funny and everything. Then we've had different films borrow from parts of it, like Shrek. But you know, I've never. Oh, and then you could even say uh, uh, the movie where he's like, uh, "As you wish," the Princess Bride. That's a yeah, little bit. That's a real. You know, that's one of those. It's a bit of a deconstruction of the whole thing, and and you know, you get into that. That borrows from a ton of those kind of films, but okay. that absolutely has elements from the Robin Hood type thing. So you're saying you have to go all the way back to Errol Flynn? I really, I, I would be hard pressed and I would love it if the kind listener would, you know, I, I'm not a Robin Hood fan, but if they would come back and say, no, you should check out this one. Right. Um, I'd be willing to watch it. I just, what I don't like, what I, what I don't like in these type of films is when they try to apply too much of a modern sensibility to a classic story like this, you have to bring modern sensibilities in, but we've had a, another one and I can't remember who was recently in it because I had zero interest, but you know, <laughs> where get... they almost make it like there's bullet time, but with arrows. And even way this thing was oh. cut, I started looking at it and thinking, God, are they doing it again? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get you the, um, <laughs> I'm going to get you Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, collector throw pillow edition for Christmas. So you can have those spread out where on one side of the couch, you have him drawing the bow. <laughs> and then on the other side is the split arrow. Um, we, we are kind of beaten up on this, but I, it goes back to kind of what I was saying to you earlier. I Are there no more stories to tell? And I will say, I, I understand probably the pitch on this was, hey, we're going to redo Robin Hood. And then everybody laughed and, you know, threw stuff at the person. He said, but wait, but wait, I have an idea. We're going to do it. We're going to shoot it like Rocky, where you see Robin Hood trained to become Robin Hood. And then he's running around and doing that stuff. But it yeah. looks like very serious, very Game of Thrones. Maybe that's the reason why they're going with it. And, and you know what? I think that's a good point, Jeff. I think that they're trying to tap into these things. I wouldn't mind seeing somebody take, you know, something as rich as Robin Hood and maybe turn it into a series like that and treat it with respect. But this, even with, I, I have a hard time when I watch shows like, uh, previews like this, pardon me, and everybody is wearing these very tailored leather outfits that this is supposed to be a poor guy who's, you know, doing whatever, but they suddenly have endless resources and we're judging this movie based on two and a half minutes of trailer, but it looked like shit. <laughs> two and a half minutes of trailers, plenty of time, plenty to judge. Uh, the other thing I noticed from the trailer is this looks like a little bit of the, the Count of Monte Cristo-esque version, because in this one, there's a scene where he's gabbing and th spitting some game with a young lady and he looks like he's very well to do. And she's like, she's like, Ooh, la la, the, uh, the Robin hood is my kind of guy. And then he was like, well, how do you know I'm not Robin hood? Right. Did you, was that in the trailer you saw? Yeah. And okay. I think that's a great grab there. I mean, you really pulled something that I my, think is true no matter what. I think that tons of these kinds of films go back to County of Monte Cristo, which is my honest favorite novel of all time. And, oh, Jeff gives me a thumbs up. Yes, I love that. Like it oh. Well, you look at this. I mean, how many films, how many stories have used the Count of Monte Cristo? You can Batman is the Count of Monte Cristo, somebody yep. that has completely everything taken away. They then use their wealth, their knowledge, their power to seek revenge. Uh, my favorite musical of all time, Sweeney Todd, is The Count of Monte Cristo. Mm. They have something taken away, and then they exact revenge across it. So I would not be surprised to see that element interjected in this. It's it's a common thing. It's one of those stories that comes again and again. 
I'm bored with them doing that. Yeah, me too. They need to they need to figure something out. But who knows? We all we'll say all this, and then a, and then next year when we're talking about Oscars, we'll be like, oh, did you see the the camera angle when Robin Hood was running down the street and the cow was behind him? Oh my God, that was so um, 2001 esque. All right. Uh- <laughs> Go ahead. Wow, this movie has not even seen the light of day, and we've already blown it apart. <laughs> oh, and the last thing I'm going to say, since my daughter does uh, competitive archery, oh, yes, how he occasionally flings the arrows drives me insane because I know all this precision and how long at least her shot should take. Now, I know he's supposed to be the most fantastic archer in the world. He can suddenly pull up, he can set, he can release, he can do all this stuff without looking and aiming. Man, he's great. But yeah. it really has this feeling of, what did he just do? See, I played uh, pool for a number of years in a number of leagues. And one thing that archery and um, pool have in common is all about your stance. Mm-hmm. And when it was explained to me when I was learning how to play pool is you have all these bendy joints and parts of your body. And what you're doing is you're getting muscle memory and you're getting position that is going to allow you to strike your object, whether it be draw your bow and let it go, or or with the cue and the ball, hitting it the right way to get whatever action you want on it. And uh, I agree. Those types of scenes, um, yeah, I'm like, yeah, kind of ruins it. Takes take again, it takes me out of the movie because you know there's no way in hell you could jump up that high and draw three arrows and then release one of them. Yeah, and do all that. Okay. I, I think you can shoot those kind of things and make them fast cutting, to where you don't remove what we're talking about which is the form of it right but you want to just rapidly pop something off and you can make it look right but the way they were doing it these were you know beautifully shot but it was like okay that that's not the way at least i know it and i'm not a i'm not a perfect daddy archer person but at least i understand what it should look like i'd like to see a business card without it on it daddy archer person yeah yeah all right well then i guess that gets a big old sad trombone now, like I said, watch it come out, and my father come to me and go, this movie was incredible. Right. Oh, can, can we add in more trailer reviews? I enjoyed tearing apart oh, a film yes. on the basis of only two and a half minutes. It's, like, <laughs> it's cut together by the marketing department and nothing to do with filmmakers. It, I enjoyed that. It's happened to both of us most of our lives. Most people have taken one look at us and gone like, yeah, that guy's, yeah. Wait, what have you heard about me, Jeff? What are you saying? <laughs> I'll send you the link. All right. Uh, so next up in headlines, um, just something I want to touch on. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a geek. Uh, or I shouldn't say a bit. I'm a full fledged geek. And one thing that caught my eye that they've been talking about for a long time, and it's getting to the point now where I'm just wondering why everybody is so in love with this. And that is an article that I read on CNET <clears throat> regarding cell phones and cell phones that are bendable. Uh, and the headline was, uh, phones with bendable, flexible screens are closer than you think. Now, first of all, before we get into the part of the, the actual article, why do we want phones that can bend? And I know that puts me immediately in like the same class of person is like, I don't need any other kind of phone. My flip phone works fine for me. Why do we want bendable phones? I, I often think the same thing. I, you and I... I believe are incredibly similar in our love of, wow, they can do that with technology. That's very cool. But it does beg the question of why. However, as I scroll through that article that you put in our run sheet, about halfway down, it has a a rendering of a wraparound phone. As soon as I see that, I think, okay, that's kind of cool. You know, we all, I wear a Fitbit tracker so I can keep track of my steps. 
I would go the next step that if what I hate right now is that I put a phone in my pocket every day. Yeah. And I, if I could wear it and suddenly, you know, it's like those little, uh, those bracelets, those snap yeah, bracelets, pop around, snap off. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. If you could pull it off and it suddenly is my phone, I kind of dig that. That's kind of cool. I, I just wonder how feasible the bendiness is. You know, you see this or you see the foldable. I, I, I don't really understand why, but it's cool. Yeah. You, you do bring up a good point there. And I think, um, uh, you hit the nail on the head for so long. The trend has been to have this rigid, you know, um, rectangular object of which we receive all of our phone calls, text messages and news off of, or the majority of us. And it is thinking outside of the box a little bit to just imagine something that you could snap around your wrist that, that when it knows when it's in that mode to use that portion of the screen. And then you're getting all the, the all the, all the benefits of a watch plus, you know, a phone. But I, I do think here soon we're going to see some new designs where I think the days of the rectangular uh, phone are going to be uh, disappearing. Um, because of, of not only technological advances, but I mean, it's how many people, I guess, I guess you take a ride in a car and you see a lot of people that do, but they just actually still use their phone up to their ear to talk. You know, most people have Bluetooth or some type of uh, device there. I, I wondered for a long time with, you know, how long do we stick with this phone? We, we all thought that when we got pagers, we thought, wow, that'll be around forever. Then that goes away. Then we get flip phones and that goes away. The phone we use now is begging for a massive update for let's transcend to something else. And, and you know, as I watch people put things to their face, then I watch you having a uh, iWatch or whatever they call that thing. Is, that, is it an iWatch? App, it's just called the Apple Watch. Okay. The Apple iWatch, but not iWatch. <laughs> um, you know, as I look at that, and then I'll ask you about it, you know, can you take your calls on it? But I know that you have to have a way to get the, the sound into your ear and yeah. then you still have to have something. We, we have so much evolution ahead of us to make this a process that really can be that personal environment without putting a big monolith up to your face. Right. So I think this is an interesting thing. I I, think I'm curious to see what they can do with it. I just don't know yet. I'm with you there 100% too, because the, the, the other side uh, of that whole discussion is once we have bendable LED screens, then the applications aren't just going to be just for phones. It's a number of other things, whether it's on your refrigerator or in your car or whatever. So just uh, since we're, since we're covering pop culture, there's a little, uh, there's a little geek for you. Um, real quick, uh, an additional headline that we've got too is, um, there's a little console that's making a big splash and, and Todd and I both being gamers, um, I've noticed and, and, um, and, you know, the reviews are coming out more and more. And this is in regards to the, uh, Nintendo switch and I have one and I absolutely love it. It's my travel, uh, console piece that I take with me. But it is now, in the most recent months, outsold the Xbox and and the uh, PlayStation, um, and a number of developers are starting to port games over to the system. Um, the latest big announcement being Diablo Three, which is a great game. Um, you know the the interesting thing about Nintendo, and the reason why I thought this was wor worthy of bringing up, 
is Nintendo has always thought out of the box. Even with uh, the Wii U, which was kind of a flop, it, it basically had a console and then your controller had a screen so you could do dual screen stuff. The GameCube, which I owned, to date is probably one of the best consoles I've ever owned. It was small, it was compact, it delivered what it should, and it and um, was was fairly priced. Even with the Switch being, I think, around two ninety nine, it's still reasonably switched. But the greatest what they did here to, as a kind of an eye turner for the uh, for the kind listener is. The thing about the Switch is it's, of course, uh, <clears throat> portability, so you can hold it in your hands and, and play and everything. But there's a docking station you get that you can plug into your TV, and you just set that in there, and then all of a sudden you can be playing uh, on your television. It's not in a, it's, it's 720. You know, some games are, are, are not in total, you know, 1080, uh, which to me I don't care about because if you're playing Zelda, I mean, it, it still looks good. Um and then they've also kept the parts of the Wii with the controls that have the tilt sensors and all kinds of stuff in there, which is pretty interesting as well. So worth noting that there's a new kit on the block. Uh, it's smaller. It's not pushing all of the streaming features that the PlayStation and uh, Xbox have. Um, I myself am, would like to see Netflix or something on there so I could watch it when I'm on the plane. Um, but definitely worth mentioning and, and a big tip of the cap to Nintendo for continually to continuing to uh, think outside the box and not just create another brick box video game console. Todd? I, I don't have that system, but you nailed it for me at the end that when I came to see you in Nebraska and we played with that system, my immediate thought was it when you look at it, it doesn't have that sexiness of a big brick that's all lit up and you know you're getting something powerful that can go all the way up to 4k but i found myself not caring i was like this is just fun it's approachable it's immediate and i can see why it's selling so well for that very reason it doesn't have that off-putting feeling that you're going to have to continue to invest in this you're going to buy these big games it to me it just immediately says pick me up and have fun that's exactly it. And, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that's when I got out of uh, PC gaming was, uh, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it here, but basically it was the MMO that was the Star Wars universe. Galaxies, I think it was. I think it was Star Wars Galaxies is what it was called. And this is, uh, you know, back in the day, um, and I had a, PC and a video card and I got it. I pre-ordered it, got the the special edition with the book and everything in it. And then I loaded it up and first it took, you know, an hour to install and then I fired it up and then there was like, and this was not when we had quite the internet speeds we do today. Then there was updates. And then once I fired it up after that, my video card wasn't really the best to be using. So I had to go get a new video card. So that's kind of when I was like, you know what? I just want to play. I just put the disc in back in the day um, and play the game. So, you know, following the timeline from that point all the way to the uh, switch, I think you hit the nail on the head. You get it, you plug it in. There are some updates, but they're generally pretty small, but then you're ready to go and ready to play. Yeah. I, it's funny. I just told my daughter the exact same kind of story about PC gaming when I told her, "No, oh, you don't understand." Back, you know, with my Star Wars geekdom, there was a thing called I think it was Dark Forces or something like that. Or, and and I said I got it and I was all excited. And 
I didn't have enough RAM. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> even though they hear the word RAM or the, the term RAM, she was like, what does that mean? <laughs> oh, you had to go down. This is before Best Buy. We had to go to a computer memory store and buy this and you had to put it in, but you had to make sure that you didn't, that you were grounded and you didn't do anything or you'd, you know, yeah. the static electricity blow out your board. We don't, we, we need to move beyond that. And I know you don't have to do those kind of upgrades with an Xbox or a PlayStation. However, it is a much more seemingly cumbersome experience. And plus, correct me if I'm wrong, with the the Switch, you can pick that up and take it with you wherever you go. Yes, and, and you're absolutely right. You hit something on the nail here. And What you can do is you can be mid-game really? and pick it up. And it'll just, you know, go to the small screen. So you can be right in the middle of whatever kind of adventure. And, you know, I'm sure it's marketed towards kids. But, you know, the mom and dad are like, come on, we got to go. So you just go over there, grab it out of the out of the little holder there and and um, or the docking station. And you're set to go mobile. So um, but the target demo, exactly that kids that want to either be on the go and mom, dad call or if my buddy Jeff says, come over, let's play. I can take my switch with me. Taking yeah. my Xbox or my PlayStation <laughs> is a little bit more cumbersome. You can do it, but still, I got to unhook it. I got to right. go over there. You know, there's a big difference to it. So, again, thank you to Nintendo for the switch. I think you uh, really did a good job in, in, in creating a game console and be interested to see what they come out with uh, down the road. All right, last 10 headlines today was something that I ran across uh, late in the week and, and uh, thought was an interesting um, bit of uh, news to talk about. Um, it, is in, it, it surrounds and is, and is about a movie that was set to come out called The City of Lies. Now, it's based on a book um, called Labyrinth, and we'll look up and I'm kind of scrolling down. This is off an article off of Daily Beast. Um, but it basically is the story of the, uh, Tupac and Biggie Smalls murder that happened in LA and with everything that's going on and all the stories that have been told, I was surprised as Justin, uh, I think it's roll Lich mentions in his article here, there does seem to be some commentary about the possibility of this movie um, was set to come out and then was taken off. Uh, the release date has been suspended initially due to some behavior problems that Johnny Depp experienced uh, or had during filming it. But if you dig a little deeper, there are a number of other reasons that could point to maybe the LAPD not wanting this movie to come out. It's a very interesting article. Todd's had a little bit of time to look over it. But it is interesting. Um, and according to this article, there was a flare-up of tempers on, um, on the film lot. But according to plenty of witnesses, later that evening, Johnny Depp and this person that was part of the crew, uh, you know, hugged it out and, and were, you know, high-fiving each other and everything. I also think that due to the recent news that Johnny Depp has been going through some financial issues and some other things, this could be a, a good way to set up or create a scapegoat for a reason not to release the film. Because if you ask the writer of this article, the writer of uh, the book Labyrinth, or um, even the officer that I believe was in charge of the investigation, there are uh, other elements that might have come across that could make the LAPD look bad, and that may be why um, 
some additional reasons why this was uh, taken off. Um, so often, Todd, we, we talk about film. We talk about what makes a good film. We talk about why the AFI, you know, selects the films uh, they do. Um, but here's an interesting situation where they, I mean, it's got uh, obviously Johnny Depp and I'm looking at the other gentleman. I can't remember. Forrest Whitaker is in it. I mean, you've got high powered actors in here. I mean, they do all that work and then all of a sudden it gets pulled. Could that really be done just because Johnny Depp got into an argument with somebody that's on the crew? So I found that when I was reading it, I found that to be a rather dubious claim that that was what was holding it up because let's begin with was there an altercation everybody seems to say there was something that occurred uh as they were should have been rapping for the day and they blah 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 and, and, and it got into a bad situation okay so this gentleman that it was the location manager apparently for the shoot and i'm not i'm not going to get into putting his name out there it's already in the article i don't want to perpetuate that but okay if you're a location manager for a film involving someone of the caliber of Johnny Depp and Forrest Whitaker, if you come out with allegations against a star as big as Johnny Depp, you have essentially blacklisted yourself from production as somebody who cannot be around big stars. Whether it's that Johnny attacked you or not, now people are like, oh, God, you know, he got in that instance with him. I'm not sure I want him. Can he find work again? Yeah, probably at, the, at an independent level, but that means that his pay grade goes down. So I immediately start thinking, well, he has to have a really good case against him if he's willing to do this because he knows that this could perpet uh, potentially ruin his career. But then you start to read that everybody else on the set, no, 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 we saw this and this and this, and they, they hugged it out, they high-fived at the end. And so I start wondering, are there other problems? Because I don't buy into, I don't buy into that the, the LAPD has the power to go to a studio and say you invested millions of dollars i mean what's their threat what are they going to do do they have some skeletons in the closet over other people they're willing to release to keep this out i it's a film and, and if anything they've drawn more attention to it than anything else and it, the, the film will at the very least eventually see home video release they're not going to shelf something of this they're not going to take millions of dollars as a write-off they will find a way to get it out there i i I don't know what's going on. I don't know if maybe the film's a disaster and they're trying to find a way to push it under the carpet and say, oops, we screwed up. It's, it's a very odd situation. And what, what better way to um, create a little, uh, a little mystery around it to help maybe that DVD release that comes out? I think it should also be noticed in that article, Global Road is the financing behind the film. And they are having um, some difficulties with their finances right now. Oh. And and um, couldn't and this is an interesting thing too because I didn't realize this and this is my naivete I didn't realize that there is um, uh, it takes money to release a movie <laughs> uh, now that I'm saying it out loud I, I definitely see uh, the the, the uh, idiocy of, of not looking at it from that aspect but they're saying that they're they're running in, into issues with money. The new movie Axel, the sci-fi picture about a robotic dog, I guess Global Road's behind that, and they vested a lot of money. I don't know how Axel's doing. Um, I don't know if you can look that up, but I mean, did you see the preview for, for, the, for Axel, the robot dog? No, because as soon as I saw that it was Axel, the robot dog, I thought, no, thank you. It's like Johnny Five meets... Uh, you know, Call of the Wild or something. It's it's 
Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. Axel is currently sitting with a 22% approval on Rotten Tomatoes. So that kind of tells you where they're at with that one. So the financial aspect could be uh, it too. So to help me gain a little more uh, you know, knowledge when it comes to film, what kind of money does it take? Do you have to pay the theaters to play the film? Well, no. You know, it's not that. It's that you have marketing. You oh. have prints. You have all kinds of things. The film doesn't just magically go from the one that they're working on, which now, now you use all kinds of digital stuff. Um, they have to, depends on, does the theater have the ability to take a digital cut or do they have to have a film print? So there's that cost. Yeah. You have the cost of marketing. You have the cost for all kinds of things like that. Then you have to do promotions of the actors going around. It could be that Johnny Depp with all his cuckoo stuff that's going on, doesn't have the time to do all this. And so they're trying to smoke screen it. There are so many elements at play. I don't buy that this, the holding of a film is about someone's allegations on Johnny. Depp. Right. That just seems very, very thin. Especially when you just had the release of, um, oh, you loved him in The Usual Suspects. Um, Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Did you did you read about his his release, his latest film, The Billionaire's Boy, Boy Club or something like that? It makes less than $500 or something on its Yeah. Version. Basically, 10 people saw it. So, But that's weird, too. I mean, that's the thing. If they're having problems with this film coming out, how is he able to come out with the film with you know what happened with his popularity and and everything it's amazing that the i guess the film must have been shot before all that news came out that's what it was right a film gets shot and it usually takes you know you you then have to to look at the fact that you have to not only edit the film you edit the sound you apply a soundtrack you do color correction so that you know if you're shooting a sky that both times the camera cuts that the blue is the same thing yeah. so there's a lot of elements that go into it the take before the film ever sees theaters and i think with that one i think they knew they had a cancerous type project and basically said we are not going to promote this um we're going to put it in one theater because we are obligated contractually to get this out there and that way somebody comes upon it and they see it that the it could be the reporters that want to report that they see it and they, they couldn't get a free pass to see it so you know who knows who paid for it and there you but, go. And there you go. The kind listener. There's the closing of the circle because there, therein lies exactly what we were talking about with City of Lies, you know, because you, you just made a, a, a fantastic point there. So, yeah, they had it shot. All the money went into it. Then they had the, the, the little scandal breakout. And now they're like, OK, we'll put it in films, but we'll, no marketing because you're absolutely right. I've seen 15, 20 ads for Axel, but I didn't see anything about billionaires, the billionaire club or billionaire boys club. Wow, that's I, I fascinating. Think that one thing you have to think of too is that it, it they also have and I and I am not real well versed when it gets into this, but there's a whole insurance uh thing that goes on in film and it can be insurance about whether the film gets finished, mm -hmm. whether someone actually does it or whatever they do. And sometimes actors don't get put into projects because their insurance price goes sky high. Yeah. And it could be part of the insurance element where they had to at least release it by a certain date or something. There are all kinds of stipulations that get buried in, in these contracts to make films. So that's why I go back to this Johnny Depp thing. It will see the light of the day. There are very few films that get shelved. Usually the films that get shelved are because somebody, the, the famous example is that Jerry Lewis, famous comedian, decided to at one point shoot a film, and I don't recall the name of it, but he wanted, it was about a clown that gets put into a concentration camp and he was trying to it's almost if you think about what uh oh my god that film with the french guy that my wife loved life is uh, beautiful thank you 
it has a little bit of the same element where a father is with a son in a concentration camp and tries to use humor to help him get by. And it, you know, it's a little bit of a saccharine film, but it's right. sweet. And I think that's what Jerry Lewis was going for is right. that he was a clown. He's in there. He's trying to help people get by. Jerry Lewis buried that film. He directed it and he was like, it'll never see the light of day. Those kind of films can get buried because he has the power. It's probably in his writer to, you know, if, if I don't like this, it gets right. thrown away. But that's a rarity because they need to get this this property out there so that they can fulfill all the obligations within the contract. So we'll see this film eventually, and maybe at some point we'll find out why they tried to bury it. And thank you for pulling back the curtain on that a little bit because you know to me, so much of so much of what we do and the kind listener you know in our day to day lives is you know goal, obtain goal. Film now, I understand a little more why uh, or the reasoning for the people that are in the industry kind of being a little bad shit crazy. Um, because first of all, you've got to come up with a script. Then you've got to find somebody that that sees your vision, finances it, and shoots it. Then you know, and then you've got to get a cast, and then you got to shoot it, and then you've got to edit it, and then you've got to market it, and then you cross your fingers, and maybe you have. A hit, and one actor that um, s- strikes uh, or makes uh, makes me uh, reminds me of this is Rob Lowe. Um, he uh, has some great books out there, some autobiographies, and one of them I can't remember which one it is, but it might be stories I only tell my friends um, about the Outsiders, and that was for Coppola, right? And Coppola yes. had wow, look at me breaking out some film knowledge here. Coppola did this really, really extensive um, casting process where he brought him out, and I guess they were in a warehouse, and he had him do all these weird. I sh- I shouldn't say weird because it it came to me, it came across to me as weird, but it was I'm sure it's totally like acting stuff, uh, where they had to do all these roles, and then they made the film, and they actually put you know the kids that were from you know the bad side of town and in horrible hotels. So you, you've got you got Matt. Uh, who are the bad kids? Let's see. Um, what's his face from Ghost was was one of them. Oh, Patrick. Well, Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Um, you got Ralph Macchio. There you go. Ralph Macchio is who I was thinking of. You got a lot of those people that were the greaser type. Right. Kids. So they're staying in in horrible hotels or, or less than comfortable hotels, and then the the the, the rich kids, the preppies. Yeah, got to stay. So Coppola created this whole atmosphere before they even they set action. And the greasers didn't like the preps, and the preps knew or thought they were better than the greasers and everything. So they go and they do all of this work, and Rob Logan is in his particular scene where he acts his acts his butt off. I can't say acts. He performed very well, dramatically, and then um, and he's a young guy at that time. So then you know they get done with the project. It goes off to be edited. Movies released. And he's in like very, very small portion of the film. And the scene that he like nailed wasn't even used. How, I mean, wow, that just blows my mind. And the fact that, I mean, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a crazy road to try and navigate and then to do all that work and it end up on the floor. Oof. So, you know, two things to that. I, I've, I've had this conversation with my father, the man that began my film education numerous times. My dad will just be beside himself when he sees somebody of a great caliber. Let's use Coppola, mm-hmm. who has, has made cinematic art, and then he's made cinematic farts. 
I mean, the man has had some films that are just lay there and they're nothing. But what I say to my dad at that time, you know, when he's just going off, well, I don't know where the Coppola's a genius or he's just a hack who's gotten lucky. I'm like, he's a genius. No one sets out to make, make a bad film. Yeah, you can go along and say Ed Wood and these kind of people that were known for making their schlock. Roger Corman, to an extent, makes schlock. No one sets out to make a bad film. So in these instances where things you know go awry, where things happen like this with the Johnny Depp film, things happen. You all set out, and there's so many elements. Jeff, you, you very well, you laid it out there very well to say that there are so many cogs going around that if one of those ends up a little less strong as the other, something falls, it falls apart. And it really can sometimes be the marketing of a film even yeah. that ruins a film because our perception is this is what I'm going to see, and when I go there, it's not that. Right. To the point about Rob Lowe, you know, a filmmaker goes into a, a film and says, here's the, this is I'm a, especially I'm adapting this from a well-loved novel. Mm -hmm. And I really want to tell this broad spectrum. But then you get there and you realize that really a film is usually about two hours and you have a through story you want to tell. And you usually want it to be along one central kind of theme. This film is about this. Well, suddenly you put the Rob Lowe element in there and it slows it down. It it's it's a great scene, but it may be a scene already right. has said something about that and you don't need it again. So unfortunately that happens all the time. Yeah. Very, very interesting and a, and a good conversation. City of Lies. We'll see if it comes out. I think Todd did a good job of uh, kind of getting us in into uh, kind of a, a little bit, like I said, behind behind the scene, behind the curtain, pulling it back a bit and all of those elements that have to come together. Um, I know it's a film I would be interested in seeing. I know that I'm going to listen to the book Labyrinth, which is uh, basically what the movie is uh, uh, based off of. Um, but you may want to check it out. That's going to do it for Headlines. Thank you for joining us. And now, this. We all know what that means. That's Todd's projector. It's time for Todd's take on. Hey, Todd, what's your take on this week? So we know my love of Planet of the Apes because I devote myself to Minute of the Apes, the podcast that I work on where we break down every minute of the Planet of the Apes movies, one minute at a time. <laughs> um, I've said that once or twice. And so, possibility I might be on that show as a guest here in the future, huh? That's right. I'm we're, as soon as I wrap up with you, I get to eat breakfast, I get to shower, and then I go and do 10 minutes of Minute of the Apes. And during that time, I'm going to throw it to the guys that you're going to be in town and we're oh. going to see if we can have you on. Cool, cool. All right. Well, we need to get through this stuff so you can get there. Let's go. Yeah. So basically, what I want to throw out today is a new graphic novel. And that is a fancy word for comic book. This does come in a hardbound edition. This is called Planet of the Ape Visionaries, and it's brought to life by Dana Gould, who is a comedic writer um, that is a Planet of the Apes fanatic. He has a podcast called The Dana Gould Hour, where he often talks about Planet of the Apes. As a matter of fact, this week, he even breaks down beneath the Planet of the Apes, a film we're currently breaking down. But not as well. You know what? He, he, does it, he does not break down the film. What he does instead was break down the production of it. And he brought some elements in there that I was like, oh, I'd never heard that spin, which, uh -huh. uh, you know. On another day, we'll we'll get into. Are we talking about Saturday Night Live, Dana Gold? He probably was involved in that. I oh. would not be surprised. Okay, all right. Please continue. Sorry. So what he did with his love was he went back to the original production of the first film. And Rod Serling, famous of Twilight Zone, was the first, not the first screener, but the first person to really give a spin to it where they began to think they had a story. And what Dana Gould did was he wanted to go back to that original screenplay and see if they couldn't adapt it into comic books. So why would you do that? How different was it? Well, I'm going to read actually a, a small paragraph. Mm. 
that I have that I found about it so that I can detail it. Uh, on the road to making the landmark science fiction film, the 20th Century Fox commissioned Rod Sterling to adapt the source material, which was from Pierre Bull's novel. Pierre Bull is the man that also wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. Sterling's first draft, which was drastically revised before filming, is a radically different vision of the franchise than the one the world has come to know and love. So, in this, uh, let me find the way to jump in. Uh, there are major differences. Taylor, which is Charlton Heston, is actually Thomas, and Ape City isn't a crude prim primitive grouping of huts. Instead, it's a bustling and urban metropolis filled with cars, skyscrapers, and a vibrant ape culture. In a world where apes wear modern clothes, drive modern cars, and rule the late-night talk show scene, the arrival of one man who will forever change how apes and humans view themselves is essentially what this is. It Now, when you read it, it, it you can immediately see, oh, they took that moment and they simply put it in a crude culture for the film. The thing that is just amazing and I love for a film lover like me is that you again see the evolution of how this began here and ended up there. The famous thing is that for Planet of the Apes, they went with the crude ape culture, you know, having huts instead of buildings because it was cheaper. Now, I was going to say, yeah, because they just didn't have the ability to, to make that happen back then. But the thing is, for me, is I was talking to Sean, one of mm -hmm. the co-hosts from Planet of the Apes, and we both looked at each other and said, wait, so you're telling me it's less expensive to construct sets that do not exist than to use existing buildings. It's cheaper to make costumes that are unique costumes for every ape instead of putting them in a suit. And I was like, that doesn't hold water for me. I think what actually is the truth is that I'm going to get obviously the famous twist of the thing is that he's been on earth all along and he sees the statue of Liberty and you still get that in this comic book to pull it off and to make people never think he's on earth. If he's in a crude situation with huts and whatnot, we oh. don't think he's on earth. And I think that's where they went. Uh, it's a great twist rod. Yeah. The, the, the statue of Liberty is not in Pierre Bull's original novel. He put that in as the various twilight zone ending. They had to twist it so that that twist worked, but this is, it's just a fascinating take on this happening. Someone did it not long ago with George Lucas's original Star Wars script, which was, was an enormous sprawling thing that just was a colossal mess. Mm. But they took it and they adapted a comic book to it. And it was a cool way of at least when you watch it, you're like, oh, my God, he had an idea in the original script that became something in the prequels. And you start to see where all this stuff was pulled from. Just a fascinating look at it. If you like things like that, this is a great thing to jump into. It's from Boom Studios and it's out right now. It's really well worth a read. You know, when we, we do, uh, thank you for bringing that up because that is an interesting look at it. Um, you've got my brain kind of, kind of kicked into gear now. Um, I'd like to, when if we, we do get to have, uh, Richard on sometime, um, I would love to talk to him. Um, he's uh, the owner and, and runs Zeus comics there in Dallas. Um, just what a comic book store. Cause now, you know, you can get them digitally. There's digital comic books and other things too. So be interesting. I'm going to look it up and see if I can get it digitally or we have some comic book stores here just because I'd like to see it. I'm not a, I'm not a Planet of the Apes fan. Um, I'm becoming one through listening through your podcast and everything. But, uh, I like it when people kind of take that different, uh, approach and thinking through it a little bit, you know, I know on the podcast, you guys talk a lot about costumes and, and masks not working. It would be easier to disguise the apes if they were wearing suits and modern day clothes, um, than having to generate that. But that would, that would be interested. Maybe that's an alternate, uh, universe as well. So yeah. that's, that's Todd's take on. Let me see if I can get over here and... Uh...
slow that projector back down. Um, for the interest of time, we're going to jump right into our um, main content for today. It's a warm-up. As uh, we've mentioned before, on September 17th on NBC, the 2018 Emmys are going to be on television. And as much as I know Todd loves award shows, we're going to do a little warm-up here, and then over the course of the next two episodes of The Other Kind Radio, we're going to go in a little deeper and talk about some of the nominations and shows um, that are on there. Um, just for the kind listener's knowledge, I've got business travel. Todd has travel. So we are going to, the next two episodes, and when I said this millions of times before, are going to be a little shorter. Um, but uh, we want to maintain that we do actually have content coming out versus uh, you know the big long ones. Uh, episode. So just bear with us on that. Uh, anyway, back to the Emmys. Uh, they're going to be on this uh, 17th on NBC, as I said. Uh, hosts are going to be Colin uh, Jost and Michael Shea, which basically is weekend update from Saturday Night Live. I'm interested to see how those two gentlemen will do hosting the Emmys. But before we get into nominations, everything, Todd and I, I've got some questions for Todd, since Todd is kind of the uh, uber genius when it comes to all things pop culture. Um, about the Emmys, how he feels about them, uh, in you know compared to the Oscars. So uh, let's dive into that now. Um, how, do you watch the Emmys every year, like you do the Oscars, or is this really kind of the you know I don't want to say stepchild, but you know the the other one that you're not as interested in? Oh, uh, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> well, that does it for this show. <laughs> uh, yes, I do watch it. I, I with that fail, I, I know when it's coming. And yes, I go in and think, oh, God, here's another moment of self-congratulatory bullshit. Um, I, However, I, I actually do find myself vastly in, interested in the Emmy simply because I've said before that I think that television is closing the gap or doing something to our perception of what. Uh, storytelling, visual storytelling. Mm -hmm. That's all we We don't think of tel television in the same way. You used to have television, which was seen as subpar to film and that actors of a lesser caliber went there. It was very, very rare that they could ascend from TV into film when the truth now. So we look at this year and this was the big thing that hit me when I told Jeff was that you can get into, I'm looking right here that it's saying between Netflix and, and HBO, uh, Netflix got 112 nominations. That's up from 91 last year. And HBO slipped a little bit to 108 instead of 111. But then you begin to jump down to the uh, the actual networks. CBS only got 34, ABC 31, Hulu surprisingly got 27, and, and Amazon 22. But you have these others that are the lesser yeah. of these. Um, so while I'm very interested in all of it, that's where my interest comes from because I, what I want to do is I want to see yeah. these people that are telling these intro interesting visual stories and some ways to me are pushing more bound boundaries than film at times. Well, I think too, an interesting uh, element technically uh, from a production standpoint, the little bit I know about it. I mean, a movie, a movie is a huge undertaking. Obviously you have a lot of people that are involved. You have a uh, months and months of, of filming and then editing but I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just going to throw this out there. It's almost getting with series like True Detective, um, with some of the other uh, really big ones, Game of Thrones as well. Huge. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're no longer writing an hour and a half, two hour movie. 
you you're writing an eight to ten hour movie if you want to put use the same terms. That to me seems would be even more difficult and require a lot more um, knowledge when it comes to storytelling. I think that you know, to me, Game of Thrones is the easiest one to jump into and have this discussion. In that, the way that these things are shot. Now, I don't know a number of these, whether they do what are essentially called multi-camera setups. You're shooting a scene and you put more than one camera, so you're covering a lot of the action. Right. It's a very economical way, but it's also the way that a lot of television is shot so that things are quick. Um, some films tend to be more single-camera setups, a little bit more of what's called the auteur approach, which that means that it's the director's vision and only the director's vision. However, Game of Thrones, you and I can debate whether you think at times it's a little too talky or not. But the truth is, find me very many films on the level of effects, on the level of acting, usually on writing, that pull that off. And I'll immediately say, yeah, well, Game of Thrones did it this time eight, eight times. Yeah. Because that every one of those is a little mini movie. And especially when you get to their final season, they're talking about each episode being an hour and a half to maybe two hours. 90 minutes is a film. Wow. And so they're making little mini movies every time. Yeah. So I, I know that Mr. Spielberg loves to jump in and say that, well, you know, TV is different. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's, it's visual storytelling. It is still visual storytelling. And he obviously knows a lot more about this than I've ever even attempted to understand. Didn't he create a, I'm sorry. Didn't he create a, a television series back in like the late eighties called amazing tales or amazing something? Amazing amazing stories those well, were movie epic size stories and in, in small bite sized chunks he was involved with er as well oh. i mean he's had his hand in a lot of stuff yeah and but i can even i i think you're right and i can see where up until a certain point he's right yeah but i yeah. think that the probably the last five to ten years as we begin to change how people consume media we have to understand that you know television used to do things that made film change their approach. That's where we get wider screens. That's why we have 3D. That's why we have all these type of things so that you would feel that you're getting a better experience when you go to see a movie. Right. I think movies are now going to have to do something to keep up with this. So I do find the Emmys very, very interesting because of the way it shifted. It's no longer sitcoms. It's no longer the standard fare. Now you're having these wide spreading approaching stories like we see now and almost uh if you were to, to liken it to a heavyweight boxing fight i mean for just just we're not going to make any predictions folks this this episode but i mean just looking at outstanding drama i mean you have okay the americans to me immediately i've seen a lot of those shows it's a television show so here we go again with is it a movie or is it a film the americans is a television show the crown oh, that was really really good Game of Thrones up against the crown. Wow. Handmaid's Tale in there as well. Stranger Things in there. This is us. I never got into. I know there was an episode that was all over media and everybody was crying. Somebody died or whatever. Uh, but I have no interest in it. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Westworld in there. So that's like Muhammad Ali versus Mike Tyson. Mike, you know, it's it's I mean, those are some heavy hitters in there. And one thing I wanted to add on, on to what you said is, you know, on your recommendation, I've been watching Castle Rock. Uh, two things real quick. One, I think I need to go back and watch Game of Thrones with my new cinematic knowledge, my mini degree. 
my macaroni and cheese degree in film and watch that because I think maybe what I was doing was 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 watching um, or, or just doing a little too much listening and expecting to see a lot of uh, things explained or done through the actors and maybe there are things happening um, in the negative space in the in the shot that maybe were unnoticed by me and maybe noticed now. Um, but then- I'll throw in real quick while you're saying that go go do that. That is a show that gets better and better. I've I've actually watched it. Okay front to end a number of times because I love it and it gets better every time. So do it. Yeah. Cause five-year-old Jeff just wants dragons and zombies and to do with the blue eyes. And how do you defeat an army that when you, you know, they kill one of yours now it becomes, you know, it's just, it's, just, they it's, become stronger. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but going back to castle rock, which, you, uh, which I've been watching under your, uh, uh, recommendation, sissy SpaceX. Now I know Glenn close is up there. Um, not Glenn Close, but who's the other one that uh, is like the the queen of all uh, actors out there, female actors? Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, right? So, I mean, Sissy Spacek, Meryl Streep. I mean, woo. Pretty damn good. So, obviously, I don't know what kind of lifestyles these actors live, so I'm going to just go ahead and, and, and just say a few things. To me, Sissy Spacek never, you don't hear about her. She's never on TMZ. There's never pictures of her out shopping lives what I would assume a pretty regular life. And I know regular can be done in air quotes, but anyway, whereas Meryl Streep is a little more Hollywood there. That's what it is. Meryl Streep, not so much, uh, Hollywood or Mary Meryl Streep, Hollywood, Sissy Spacek, not. Um, but the point I'm getting to in all this, uh, comparison is for somebody like Sissy Spacek to come and work on a project I listen to the podcast that, that goes along with the show, which I recommend you do as well, Todd. There's some good stuff on there. Okay. Um, for her to come and do the project, wow. And how this all ties into our conversation here is this is, quote, unquote, a television show. And I'm sure if you know, we went back 10 or 15 years and said, you know, in, uh, a little ways down the road, Sissy Spacek going to do a television show. You and I would be gobsmacked because there's no way. She doesn't need money. She's not looking for any kind of, but she did. So there was something there that she liked in that. So world. that's, that's one thing that I think is a very interesting conversation is it used to be 10 years ago that if you heard of an actress of the caliber of Sissy Spacek doing television, it was considered that her career was on a downward cycle. Oh my, what happened to her? She's, oh, yeah. she must be on. The, the once cinematic actress is now on this television show. She's finding steady work, but it's not of the same caliber, but right. she's back and she's working. And it was always, you were working to get back there not true anymore now you got people who are like dude i'll do that in a heartbeat you you've got you know woody harrelson who's made this new career for himself being in both television and film and doing all these things you've got all these great actors that are willing to do this i want to i want to take a moment to highlight somebody that unfortunately their show didn't get uh, nominated it's the rare network show that i think is outstanding and that's the good place with Kristen bell and ted danson mm. it's a it's a 30 minute sitcom it's not a sitcom really it's more of a you know what they call a single camera comedy where it's it's it, it's basically a bunch of people go to heaven and it's a little bit of a twisted heaven that's all i'll say and as a fun thing there's also a podcast that i think you would adore because they it is it is literally the people who make it making their podcast and they talk about how each one is developed and what they do and what goes into it. And then they bring people like Kristen Bell on Nice, and it's fantastic. It's that rarity of network shows. It's great. Unfortunately, didn't get nominated this year because 
you know, we have to always throw in things like Curb Your Enthusiasm into an outstanding comedy series because it, it, it it's funny. We love it. You know what? It's not the same as it used to be. And I'm going to get off in the weeds and I'll shut up. No, no, but, no, no. I, I mean, this is we're talking about the Emmys and that's exactly what it is. There's there's stuff on here. I'm like, really? But go ahead. But, you know. I look at a thing like The Good Place, and it is not a typical network show, like I said, but it brings back somebody like Ted Danson from Cheers, and it gives them a new life in these things. And Ted is finding, you know, other work. He was on Fargo a couple of seasons ago, and yeah, he, he was great. Yeah, he was and, good. And and I just I, I love this very thing that you illuminated, Jeff, which is these actors of an ex, an extreme prominence are looking at the medium and going. No, Mr. Spielberg, this is fine work. This is good storytelling. And I don't care whether I see it in a cinema or whether I see it in my bedroom with a smaller TV. If it's a good story and it's well done, I don't care. And that's what I think that a lot of these people miss about where we are right now. So that's, I, you know, to bring it back full circle, that's why I do get excited about the Emmys. And I do get a little excited about television in ways that I never expected to. So would you say currently you're more excited about the Emmys than, than necessarily the Oscars later? Oh, geez. That's like asking, do <laughs> I want to go to the proctologist or do I want to go to the dentist right. and have a root canal? Well, it's, work on, it's work on either end, I guess, if you look at it from that side. Yeah, um, we're, all, we're all working towards the middle. It's just which one is less painful. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so um, and you, you mentioned some really interesting things there, and we'll, we'll kind of tie things up. But... Yes, I think the the um, the technology advances of people having their own home theaters. I think that's absolutely right because now you can watch something like Game of Thrones. You might you might as well be at a theater. Uh, you have people like you that have a theater, you know, and can watch it on the big screen. I mean, if that was the separating factor of four three versus sixteen nine in aspect ratio between television and film, then we've got some real blurred lines here. Because if I show you uh, the Red Wedding from Game of Thrones and the opening scene to uh, Saving Private Ryan, I mean, you both walk away, everyone walks away from seeing those two scenes and going, holy shit, that was awesome. Um, exactly. And I, th I think to your point, Jeff, I, yes, I've built a, a thing here where I've taken a projector and made it look like an old 30s movie theater. But you can have almost the same yeah. experience now if you go buy a 60, 70-inch television, which right. really is not that expensive anymore. Right. And if you sit close enough, you're still getting that I'm immersed in a screen right. the same way as if you sit at a theater. You've got surround sound around you, and if you can darken it up, you in your mind are almost having the exact same experience as you do at a theater. You're right. You're right. And I won't pick on you about that anymore. Oh, but... I don't care. Pick on me all you want. <laughs> so, all right. Let's Before we close things out, I mean, um, are there – is there is the Emmy governing body? Is that are they, they do they suffer from the same um, red tape and politicalness uh, as the Oscars? You're shaking your head. Yes, I figured that would kind of be um, interesting because I was looking through the the comedies, and that's kind of what I was telling you when it came to film. Would it be that hard to put that that show that you like in there? You know, no. I mean, or was it not put in because they didn't play ball on a certain thing or, or whatever. I mean, it's unfortunate that politics gets, you know, involved when it comes to trying to uh, award people for their, for their, you know, for their contributions. I, I find it a little odd that, you know, there are some things in here, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is, you know, a fine show, but I, I, what are you doing? It's just now you're doing these inclusionary type things where it's like, 
are you not brave enough to make choices and say, because the marvelous Mrs. Maisel is infinitely better than yes. a number of things that they're looking at. But at the same time, you've got the good place, which is breaking new ground because it really does, you know, yeah. it messes with expectations on shows. This is, I just, I've said it before. I find award shows silly because I, I got to find a way to, to summarize this. Um, I, I love what it gets my brain thinking about, which I've already verbally vomited on all the different things about how I do think that this medium is taking step forward. Right. But we still are betrothed to this idea that we have to somehow say that's the best thing this year. Right. I, I find this asinine. I, I would rather them get up and honor shows. You know, you we're go. now going to honor the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And that, those people get excited because they can say we were honored by the Emmys this year. Why do we have to say one's better than the other? Right. It's, it's kind of the same reason, though, but if you do it that way, you don't get that trophy. And in acting or in film and in television, you got an Emmy, you got an Oscar, yeah. and that opens the doors for a lot. So, But that's an interesting discussion, and we can even elaborate a little bit on it next episode. When we start getting into some of the actual shows on there, uh, and I look forward to having that discussion with you. Todd, anything you need to throw in here for the end of the week? The only thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do this in 15 seconds because I know you're doing it for brevity, but you took away your judgment. Just tell us what did you think of the new Mission Impossible? Oh, that's so nice of you. Um, it, was, it was good. To sum it up quickly, um, I now see Mission Impossible 4 in similar territory as James Bond. For all the reasons why we don't let me let me rephrase that. For all the reasons why some of us may or may not be a fan of Tom Cruise, he's an action star, and he does a good job in this film. And and with my macaroni degree in film, I appreciated and enjoyed this film. They did some really interesting shots. I was able to follow it. He does all of his own stunts. There is a helicopter chase towards the end of the film that is amazing, and he was piloting the helicopter. Hmm. So some would look at his some would look at his uh, willingness to do his own stunts as a machismo move, as an ego move, both which may be very very true. But you know, if you can jump between two buildings, and in the midst of landing on the edge of the second, breaking your ankle, but still getting up and finishing and hobbling off the uh, you know off the off camera. therein lies at least some some room for appreciation and admiration for me because if that would have happened for me i would have just immediately started crying and you know i would have been yelling cut and the director would be like that's not your job and i'd be like well i broke my ankle and then we don't care um (laughs) you know just joking but he he is an action star it's been a difficult week so i was able to go see this and it and it did exactly what I wanted. I saw an action film that had funny parts, had exciting parts, um, and took me away for and it's it's a longer one. It's two and a half hours. I desperately want to see it. I you know, I, I constantly say it with a kid. I I go out with the intentions of seeing films and it's like, oh daddy, can you oh okay. I won't go. <laughs> but I want to see it and I want to see it in a theater. So I'm going to try to get out this week and I'll let you know what I think. It, it, it is. The only thing that's just, that's distracting in it is the actor that plays Superman is mm-hmm. in it. 
and all the things they try to do to make him not just, oh, look, there's Superman. I mean, they have him with a really kind of bad mustache and a, and a bad beard, and they mess his hair. <laughs> but it, it, through it all, you're just, you know, I'm going, it's still Superman. <laughs> Why that did- is the unfortunate thing. Once you play something like Superman, yeah. you are always Superman. But I, I will say this about Henry Cavill. I think he has some acting chops beyond oh. what we think because he's done some things. I'm like, okay, there's something there, and I'm going, I'm going to throw it out. He is one of those unfairly handsome men. Oh yeah, and he's like yeah. he's six something. I mean, I'm sure when they shot some of the stuff, old poor Tom Cruise had to be standing on something because he is over six feet and he is you know built. So and Tom Cruise is around my size, maybe a little <laughs> bit taller. So they probably actually did stunt work and put him on wires so that he could be in the same shot with exactly, Henry exactly, exactly. So folks, kind listeners, if you're looking for a film to go out and see and kind of enjoy and not worry about uh, the political aspect of this and that and the other, it's a good story. It's it's got good twists and turns, and and the helicopter chase was since the French Connection. I know I'm probably going to piss a lot of film people off, but was really well done. That helicopter chase is, is had me on the edge of my seat. So well, I, I accept that challenge. I'm going to go see the film and then I'm going to look at the great chases. I think that that might be a really interesting idea to look into. So well, there you go. There you go. All right, folks. Well, you've done it. You made another uh, hour and 14 minutes through the other kind radio. Uh, thank you so much for your support, your emails. Uh, you know how to find us on the other, uh, the other kind radio.com. We're on all your favorite podcast listening tools. Todd just informed me that we're, on a couple new ones, uh, of course, I can't remember what they are right now. What was it? There was the podcast. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on Pocket Casts. We're on Google Play Podcasts. There you go. So there's some, there's some even ways to uh, to enjoy the show. Again, uh, the next couple episodes we're going to pre-record and put out due to travel, but we will be covering the Emmys and kind of talking, counting you down to the day on September 17th when the award show will be on. Until then, have a great week. And remember, we all are the other kind radio. The other kind radio.